Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. My name is Lee Hawkins. I've been a journalist for over 25 years. On my new podcast, What Happened in Alabama?, I investigate my family history, my upbringing in Minnesota, and my father's painful nightmares about growing up in Alabama. What Happened in Alabama is a new series confronting the cycles of trauma for myself, my family, and for many black Americans. Listen now. Welcome back to Inside the Hive, taking you inside the news with the people who make and shape it. I'm Emily Jane Fox. I'm here with my co-host, Joe Hagan. Hey, Joe. Hi, Emily. Today, we have two very special guests to talk about the news of the moment, the Russia invasion of Ukraine, how it came to this, what's happening right now, and where it's all headed or where it might be headed. We have with us Nina Khrushcheva, who is a Russia expert at the New School she is an expert on Putin. She is herself Russian, the granddaughter of Nikita Khrushchev, the head of the Communist Party in the 1960s. And she knows what she's talking about, and she's got a lot to say. Then we're going to talk to Alexander Vindman, the former director of European Affairs at the National Security Council, who, of course, testified in the Trump impeachment trial over whether or not he extorted the Ukrainian president to gather dirt on Joe Biden. You'll remember that whole affair. And we've got both of these people here to talk about what they know best, which is Russia and Ukraine. And they're going to take us into it and help us understand it. And I will just say before we get into them, that it is obviously all of this is unfolding. We are recording on Thursday afternoon and this will air on Friday morning. So who knows what could happen in the hours in between these interviews. But these are two incredibly knowledgeable, richly sourced people who are very connected to the region. And so I, I would imagine that their opinions and takes and, and knowledge will hold and, and be illuminating for the weeks to come. Definitely. It's a new year, but it's the same old, no law, just vibe Supreme Court. I'm Melissa Murray. I'm Leah Littman. I'm Kate Shaw. And we are the hosts of the Strict Scrutiny podcast on Crooked Media, who also happen to be constitutional law professors in our free time. Join us each week as we unpack what's on the docket for the Supreme Court term and break down the latest headlines while still managing a laugh or two. So whether you're a lawyer, a law student, or just trying to make sense of what these cases mean, Strict Scrutiny has got you covered. New episodes out every Monday, wherever you get your podcasts. It's time for some bad decisions. Today on the program, we have Nina Khrushcheva, professor of international affairs at the New School in New York City and author of In Putin's Footsteps, Searching for the Soul of an Empire Across Russia's 11 Time Zones. Nina, thank you for coming on the program today and on such short notice and under such duress. Thank you. Uh, you know, I think so many of us are getting a crash course in Ukraine, in Russia, in, in global affairs 
in Eastern Europe and, and, and beyond. And so we have a lot of questions for you. I mean, a lot of Russia experts, yourself included, predicted that Vladimir Putin uh, wouldn't do this, would not uh, invade. Absolutely. And I eat my words every day now. Yeah. Uh, even China appears to have been surprised by it. And uh, I saw one analyst say that Putin seems to have gone from kind of this cold, logical leader to suddenly emotional, acting on emotion like or uh, not taking in the full consequence of what he's done. You know, as somebody who's been studying him and studying this country and is, knows Russia, what's going on in Putin's mind right now? Well, I think it's a billion dollar question. It's the global security question is the world's fate question now. I think that's why I've been arguing. I mean, one of the lines that I like to use, that he's a careful gambler. Remember in 2014 when he annexed Ukraine and there was the idea to go into this whole, now everybody knows what it is, the whole space to uh, Novorossiya, the new Russia, the sort of the Ukrainian territories that were Russian-Ukrainian territories, and they were, uh, as he said just recently, a uh, firm part of Ukraine after the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917, but traditionally have been parts of the Russian land, although that is also slightly um, sleight of hand on his part. But okay, let's just take him at face value a little bit. And uh, so the response was such in 2014 that Crimea stayed because Russians supported it and they thought it was you know, the, the part of their, uh, their legacy. And so that was very popular. And nobody really cared about Donetsk and Luhansk, the ones that he just recognized as two uh, breakaway republics. Uh, and uh, so the Russians went a little further and then uh, they got beaten up by the Ukrainians. And he very quickly withdrew because he didn't want the bloody bags coming back. He didn't want that war or that pretense of, I don't know, saving Russia from the regime, uh, the revolutionary regime or whatever regime he called, the Nazi regime he calls it today uh, in Ukraine, the new regime in Ukraine in 2014, the new the new leaders of Ukraine in 2014, he didn't want to fight with them because it would be just too destructive for that glorious story of Crimea taking over and landing return. So that's what my argument has been, is that he's a careful gambler. He uh, He's rationally calculated. He doesn't take steps that he doesn't think are going to bring better results than the negative effect, so on and so forth. So clearly, like the rest of them or me, we were thoroughly mistaken because even when he recognized the uh, Donetsk and Luhansk two days ago, which seemed like eternity now, I thought it was a proportional response. It was a calculated tactical calculation on his part, because since the United States has been essentially baiting him, saying, well, you're going to invade tomorrow, you're going to invade tomorrow, you're going to invade tomorrow. And, you know, when you deal with autocrats, remember Saddam Hussein, if you have weapons of mass destruction, he's not going to tell you he doesn't, because that affects his image of the great macho man, the power man, the autocrat. So, of course, his brain, which was partly politician, partly militant autocrat, kind of got leveled into the militant autocrat because he had to respond. And all his hawks around him were saying, you need to respond. America is insulting you. Once again, America is insulting you. They're not sitting at the proper table with us. And so I thought, fine, he's just going to show them that he has leverage. He has power. He's going to 
recognize those republics and say, well, that's my response to you. I showed enough strength. Now we can deal. And I was completely confident. I spoke about it on CNN and somewhere in the morning or in oh, actually on MSNBC in the evening, half an hour before he ordered invasion. I mean, that's an embarrassment to professional embarrassment of no proportion. Uh, and so here I am trying to understand. And I really think that uh, in, in, proper language or maybe in proper language, I think he, he went bonkers in, 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 in the last yeah. weeks or something. Well, I think that we started to see a shift in how he was speaking when he gave the address on Monday evening. It exactly. seemed like a very unusual, probably once in his reign address to his nation. Did you see any signs when you were watching that on Monday evening or Tuesday when you saw it, that things maybe were going to be different? A little bit, uh, because it seemed, because it was usual Putin sort of calm and calculated, speaking very well in full sentences. But the picture that he presented was just an entirely jumbled, mumbo-jumbo of some historical something or other. The pet peeves, the grievances, part truth, although George Orwell said that all propaganda lies, even if it tells the truth. So if there's some truth to it, I mean, it still, it doesn't matter. Whatever those things were a century ago, it's a century ago. Well, many countries had things a century ago that they no longer have. It doesn't mean that they take take tanks to reclaim them. But I still thought, because the address was so obviously addressed to the United States. It wasn't addressed, I mean, maybe to NATO and Europe, but it wasn't even to Ukrainians, it wasn't to the Russians, it was to the United States. We are telling, I'm telling you that I am firm, I did what I did, and don't rile the Russian bear. And once again, don't rile the Russian bear. It doesn't mean that you're going to send tanks and, and bombard Kiev. So because I thought that, you know, since being a careful gambler, and also judo master, so it was a big reference for me, is that you're really not going to do moves that are going to be more uh, hurtful to you than they, I mean, hurtful to your case than beneficial to your case. So yes, I did see that it was a little bit of alternate reality that he had, but he already had those Ukrainians' alternate realities. He wrote an article in the summer, which seemed at the time, once again, I thought it was kind of, I'm a Russian, but also it's my job I teach propaganda is to read between the lines. So what I was reading between the lines, it wasn't an article for the Ukrainians. It was an article for everybody to see where he stands. So we all kind of create propaganda off of it. So, but it wasn't really kind of a great treatise on how we're going to handle Ukraine, I thought, well, wrong. So it was, and then he did this December thing when he speaks to the nation every year uh, for four hours and people ask questions and I, I mean, journalists ask questions and so on. And then too, he said that I am going to explain Ukraine to you. So that has been happening. But on the other hand, all Soviet leaders, Russian leaders, they have this very tense relationship with Ukraine because it's giant, it's independent, it hits its own kind of its own history, its own agenda. And so they have in a almost competitive relationship to it. And so, yes, there were signs, as probably any psychiatrist would say, but at the same time in political science or in, in analyzing politics, signs do not necessarily mean action. I mean, they don't always result in this. And that's what I find so dramatic because what we are doing, what the Russians are doing in Ukraine now is absolutely barbaric, immoral, and completely not modern because it really goes back to kind of like 17th century Catherine the Great. 
I couldn't agree with you more. And, and you, you brought up the fact that it really seemed like he was talking to the United States on Monday and, and in what he was writing last year as well. And do you think that this shift has anything to do with the fact that U.S. intelligence has actually been very effective and, and has been very well played? That it sort of feels like the way that the administration and that the the intelligence in the U.S. has been leaked and declassified um, and has sort of been one step ahead of Putin here. Do you think that that has sort of riled him and, and maybe jostled him and, and led yes. him to, to make these unpredictable decisions? Yes, I think so. But I actually see, I, I, I look at it differently, actually, because, uh, and that's for which I've been now hit and insulted and basically death threats, because how dare oh. I criticize the Biden administration, because I actually don't look at it as a positive thing. Good mm. for them. You've got the intelligence. The intelligence needs to stay intelligence. And I actually thought it was a giant miscalculation because if you don't want to rile the Russian bear and you want to have diplomacy, you do diplomacy. You don't pretend you're doing diplomacy because we may, dis I mean, we, we do dislike Putin tremendously. And But Sergei Lavrov is not an idiot. He actually knows when there is a diplomatic conversation or it's a conversation when he is told, you do what we're told and then... Or else, because the reason I was shocked and kept thinking, you know, to, to the Biden administration, basically, you're baiting him to do this. Are you doing it on purpose? Do mm. you really want him to react? Because he's Putin. I mean, otherwise, you don't know Putin. And he already did this. He did it in 2008 when Dick Cheney promised Mikhail Saakashvili, then the president of Georgia, that he's going to support him. Saakashvili went to bomb Tsinvali, the capital of South Ossetia. So Putin jumped in. So are you doing it on purpose? So I thought that when all American diplomats were coming out of meetings saying, but we threaten Russia and like, right, that goes really well in the Kremlin right now. And that's what I mean when his military part of the brain and his hawk saying, look how they're insulting us. So I thought, from my point of view, I'm not blaming Biden at all. He, the intelligence was right, good for them. After Afghanistan, we're happy that it was. But I thought, from my point of view, it was not played well at all. I don't know if it would have prevented Putin to do what he has done, but I think when you're dealing with people like Putin, uh, you actually deal with them backstage, trying to see where you have connection and points of kind of conversation rather than rather than embarrass him in front of the whole world, because that does not play well with, with autocrats like him. And the tell from his um, speech the other night was this almost theatrical and extreme comment that if anybody interferes, there are going to be consequences greater than any in history. It also sort of relayed to me that this invasion is about more than just the Ukraine. Right. Oh, it's about a larger it's a larger geopolitical message. He's putting a line in the sand and saying we are now asserting ourselves on the world stage. We've got China on our back. And, you know, this is a brave new world. It is a totally brave new world. Actually, it's remarkable that you are mentioning because I've been saying that today what we're seeing is a mix between the new version of the Brave New World and the sequel to 1984 by George Orwell, kind of, they merged together in this completely surreal, uh, surreal universe of Putin. No, absolutely. And I think, and that's why he feels he's in the right. It's because he felt, he, in his, I mean, look, 20 years of power, absolute power corrupts absolutely. So he's probably in his head that he already sees reality 
the way it is not. I mean, he he can't even. I mean, I don't know when when was the last time he actually left the Kremlin and walked around the streets, which he actually used to do at the beginning, which was interesting. So he was very attuned to people's reactions, but it's it's no longer. So yes, he was he he as he said, he's completely seeing it this way that Zelensky went to the dark side of um, Western values that are there to break down the great Russian national character and no, so we have to we have to fight. And I mean and that's when it's clear that that delusion now probably has reached a clinical level because no especially in a country that talks about the war all the time. I mean everything is about World War Two. In fact Ukraine is a problem because they don't want to celebrate victory in World War II with the Russians. How dare they? It's our common victory, but they celebrate mm. it differently. And yet you talk about this, what the horrible thing it is to be in war, to be a victim of the war, and then go and bomb your brotherly country that in every single appearance you say it's the same people. You know, Ukraine, of course, they're not, but you say they're the same. So it is a kind of bundle of contradictions that that Putin really never never displayed before because mm. he I mean I, I actually I have to say this is the first time ever and actually the the two times when he surprised me because I could every time when Americans ask this question like what's in his head he's unpredictable of course he's predictable you know he, for example when Americans were, were saying it's going to be attacked tomorrow it's like don't do this because if you, you tell him one more time just no don't tell him because he's going to do it because it is that's how they behave. One time when he released um, Mikhail Khodorkovsky, one of his first victims, you know, the uh, Yukos oil director and, and creator who spoke against him. So that was 2014, maybe. Uh, when he released him, I was surprised. But he promised Angela Merkel that he would in this time. So this is the t- second time, a horrible time, when uh, when he surprised us all. Mm-hmm. The profile you get of him, and which is common to a lot of strongmen types, and and Trump, for instance, uh, incredible insecurity, acting out of feelings of grievance and insecurity, and he has argued that he's concerned about NATO countries, you know, Ukraine joining NATO and uh, making his border insecure, and he's used he's used this as a pretext. But Thomas Friedman was in the Times earlier this week, basically, I don't know if he was agreeing with him in chapter and verse, but saying that we had made some mistakes by NATO being too aggressive to build up close to the border of Russia. What do you make of that argument about uh, you know, NATO's sort of proximity and him, him using that as an argument for, hey, you guys are getting a little too close and we need to protect ourselves? Well, and I actually don't think it is a pretext in his mind because – you know, yeah. there's been evidence the United States did use NATO as a as an offensive force when it decided. So he's not in the wrong. I mean, the fact that Putin says it suddenly becomes a taboo to say, but it's not. I mean, yeah. you know, not like the United States was collecting stamps in Iraq, correct? Uh, so he's yeah. looking at this kind of instances and, and lays them out in front of us. It's just the problem that we have a messenger who has a problem. Uh, but um, I actually wrote that, that, I mean, it wasn't, of course, not Thomas Friedman, but I wrote that very article uh, two months ago because mm. I write a column for Project Syndicate in which I did make the same argument is that, uh, you know, maybe the Austrian version of 1955 would be uh, a neutral state, would be useful, maybe Finland, you know, this this kind of political solutions immediately uh, take 
uh, Ukraine into European Union uh, rather than NATO. I mean, it may not have made any difference, and we could be pretense, but we wouldn't know it anymore. I know what Thomas Friedman would argue and why he's arguing that, because I was George Cannon's last research assistant. I mean, I'm that old. Wow. Uh, nobody yeah. remember that, but I was at the Institute for Advanced Study, and I was his last research assistant. And yesterday, I was looking for some documents, and imagine that I found a Cannon-typed uh, paper, not a paper letter, but it was a long letter, like five pages, I think, to uh, Strobe Talbot, who was the Secretary of State at that time under Bill Clinton, saying, Strobe, don't do this, laying out. I mean, I do have the actual paper on that. Wow. Don't do it. Why not do it? And so on. And I have Strobe Talbot's response explaining why they would and how they would. And a band strobe says, well, you said that you never shared it with anybody, but do you mind if I share you this document with us? I don't know if he did. Uh, and note from Canon to me, and I completely forgot that I had it, and now I have this amazing piece of history in my home uh, saying, uh, you know, for your information, what do you think? So we, because we spoke a lot about this, and I am with him that... America was too triumphalist in its victory. And I'm not blaming it. I mean, of course, it was a great triumph. But the same thing, I think, I think it was the same mistake. Once again, no conditional tenses in history. We don't know how it would have played out. If there was slightly less pompous about his invasion, maybe it could have played out differently. So it's kind of Putin is Putin and America is always America. Right. Our interpretation of Putin or an interpretation of Putin is that this is the central grievance driving him, that he must restore Russia's dignity. Yes. And I think that's how he became so popular in 2000, because under Boris Yeltsin at the beginning was the great euphoria, but then Yeltsin got sick. He started drinking. He didn't look well. Uh, Russia was sort of this very chaotic capitalism. It was almost gangster capitalism. And suddenly comes this KGB man and says, well, here is your pension and here is your salary and here is your road from one village to another. And so, oh, my God, that's a wonderful thing to have. So he was sort of a jack of all trades, sort of the James Bond of mm -hmm. contemporary Russia. And he, of course, liked parading that. Uh, so, But it was one of his grievances. And I think it's the reason he was so popular almost probably until yesterday is that it's a lot of, it's, it's for many of Russian grievances. I mean, Russians do have these grievances that, you know, it's a big country, it's 11 time zones. That's why I actually wrote that book in Putin footsteps, because I wanted to understand how Russia thinks of itself. I mean, it does think of itself uh, as, as, as an empire. And, and I saw his popularity. And in fact, when I came back from that trip all across 11 time zones, I was saying, uh, the book I think adds this way, is that if I were Putin and it would be my country, I think I'm, I would think I'm God. And so now we see with this action, it almost feels like he's a deity who can move nations, almost the Alexander the Macedonian or some such, or wow. Churchill or Stalin in Yalta, some this mm -hmm. grandiosity of leaders that don't even exist anymore. And he's a you said insecure. I mean, he's a small man of five, six, saying he's five, seven to be slightly, to be slightly taller. So he has that. I mean, his giant wow. country, giant palaces. You see those palaces when he was meeting with Macron, this giant white table that they had in between them. And yet he's a small man with great, with great insecurities, which I think 
a lot of Russian leaders are. I mean, Stalin had the same problem. You know, they, they often they do have that problem. Well, when yeah. you have that problem and you do have the view that you can behave like a godlike figure, there are obviously grave consequences to that. And we're seeing them play out already just just hours into this movement. And I think that there is obviously so much fear surrounding what will be. I think the three things that really come to mind are obviously fear of what the Ukrainian army is able to do to defend itself and if they're going to stay in the country and and how they're going to be able to hold up against this Russian force that seems to be coming at them from all sides. Uh, fear for the people who were active in the revolution in 2014 will they be rounded up in some way? Will they be held accountable? Will they be? Uh, will there be consequences for them moving towards a more democratic Western view of the world? And then fear of, will this spread beyond Ukraine? Will there be action in other parts of Eastern Europe? And I'm just wondering if you could speak to any, any part or all parts of those fears or concerns and what you see as reasonably on the table. Well, I don't know. I mean, it's it's we don't even know because... Then Putin's spokespeople kept saying, well, Putin outlined the agenda for this special operation very well. It's the peacekeeping or preventing something or other agenda in Donbass. Okay, fine, in Donbass, but you went way beyond Donbass. So how is it outlined? Then uh, the agenda is it's going to, I can't even pronounce it, denazify, whatever that means. Meaning the denazify what is taking out Zelensky, because he in other parts of the speech was, he's a Nazi government. So it's not clear exactly what they want. I mean, you know, so, uh, oh, and at the same time, we are not an occupational power. Okay, but and who are you then? So why are you, it, it would be wonderful. I mean, and that's a horrible thing that we keep saying when I said that he recognized uh, Donetsk and Luhansk, and that, and if that's it, then wouldn't that be wonderful? But it's no longer wonderful. It would be wonderful if they decided they're just going to destroy the military targets and be done. But that doesn't seem to be happening. So, what does he really want to occupy Ukraine? And then it goes to the next point that you make about the people, those in 2014, but also, I mean, these are Ukrainians. They're not just going to be invaded lying down so and they now have a law where each ukrainian can have a gun so that's going to be horrible guerrilla war and they already ukrainians show how they do that in world war ii so now they're going to fight against those russians who were fighting with them in world war ii so for me as a russian it's just I'm saying it, and I'm almost I'm greeting Aldous Huxley slash George Orwell slash Evgeny Zamyatin slash Fahrenheit 451. I mean, it, because it's just inconceivable. So that's a big question. And uh, um, so we don't know where he's going to stop and what he's going to do. And uh, uh, so Belarus already, by default, essentially, is under his guidance. Although Lukashenko, interestingly, keeps speaking on many sides of his mouth and almost often against what Putin wants him to say still. So that's there. And so if he does take Ukraine the way it seems that he's going to, that's going to be a pan-Slavic nation. I mean, pan-Slavic empire with the Chinese backing. I mean, that in itself, if we think about this, that's a terrifying prospect. So we have 
more than the whole continent becoming that power that is going to look at the West as not just an, an adversary, not just a, a competitor, but as a hardcore enemy. What are they going to do? How are they going to handle it? And, you know, yeah. and, and just imagine for a second that in this case, China may be a calming force. I mean, that in itself is a shocking proposition. Uh, so yeah. all these predictions are quite terrifying, and I don't know if we want to go all these rabbit holes that are potentially there. Yeah. Well, everybody's talking about it, you know, like World War III, it's a, or it's a new Cold War that he's establishing, right? But it also depends on, or does it, on him having the backing of his own people. I mean, what are your friends and family in Russia? What is the Russian press? I mean, they're surprised by this too, aren't they? Everybody's shocked. I mean, actually, uh, Anton Trinovsky, the Moscow bureau chief, had a piece in the Times today where, and I think it just called, like, I, I didn't expect it. So nobody expected it. I mean, you know, I didn't expect it and I do it for a living. Uh, so that just, yeah. just horrific to imagine because he was seen as pragmatic, calculating, don't bite more than he can chew. And so that's why he didn't go in Kiev in 2014, even if there were the same kind of maps being shown then by, uh, by the American press. So, and suddenly this, because, and until very recently, even people who work with his people, the people who defend him, who people explain him at all times much better than I do, because I don't defend him. I only try to explain his modes of thinking, saying, well, why would we do this? Why would Putin do this against Russian interests? So it is against Russian interests. I just don't see, except if you have that idea of history, an idea of history, not today, and that, by the way, he's not that different from most Russian leaders because they care only about the giantness of their state, the imperial perception of it. I mean, that's why they're so insecure because, you know, you're big, but are you really that important? Uh, so it seems to me he's concerned with that, how he's going to get in that historical moment. So by the time, you know, say 100 years from now, we'll forget the blood, we'll forget the shame, we'll forget the zero and minus zero, minus 100 economy that Russia is going to become very, very soon, losing, uh, you know, blocking visas so Russians would not be able to travel. And so, I mean, all these horrible things, uh, uh, the world will freeze because there's no Russian gas. There would be shortages of wheat or, or grain or horrible things. And yet he thinks that in 100 years, he would be known as this new Putin the first who was able to unite all Slavic lands, because that has been a dream of every Russian patriotic philosopher, that these three nations, Belarus, Russia, and Ukraine, should be one and be sort of pan-Slavic, maybe include uh, some states of former Yugoslavia and so on and so forth. But that's, that's, that is psychotic because this is so non-modern in, in any way. But he did say to the president of Azerbaijan, who was very nervous about this whole thing, if you know what, now all of them are going to be not independent. He said, no, 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 you're all okay. It's just Ukraine because it's run by, because it is a puppet government run by the United States. Mm. Before we let you go and 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 get back to all of the things that we know you're watching and all the people you know you're speaking to today, I don't want to put you in a situation where you're getting criticized more. I know I know how 
people can be, but I do want your take on what the administration, what the government in the U.S. should be doing now. You were, I think, rightly critical of the fact that maybe this was not the way to to handle Putin, that maybe he was being antagonized by releasing this this classified information uh, and this intelligence that was gathered. So knowing what you know, how do you think that the administration should move forward from where we are right now? You know, I was asked this question and I, I, I don't have a good answer. I mean, I you know, sanctions are coming and they're going to be crippling and they should, but I also know that they will do no difference whatsoever because Putin is not going to be targeted by them. It doesn't matter. Even mm-hmm. those kids of the giant um, oligarchs or giant um, uh, administration officials who now are being sanctioned, which was probably should have happened much earlier because that could have made a difference. So they won't be traveling abroad. But generally, you know, Russia now is a rather comfortable country. They can handle it. Uh, So the problem is going to be all for us, for regular people, because if these people lose their potential to travel, then Putin will do what he did with the uh, sanctions the first time around when, you know, suddenly things stopped getting into Russia. And so he declared the... um, embargo on food products from Europe and suddenly there was no cheese from Italy and there was no no chocolate from France and so on and so forth. But they didn't suffer from it. I mean, they're fine. It's just the rest of the country. So now it could be the same thing with the visas. They just say, no Russians can can travel. That's it. The borders are closed. Goodbye. Uh, So it is going to be problematic. And negotiating with him now on what? So it's not even... So my suggestion, I don't, but I don't know how to do this. I actually think he's ready for the Nuremberg trial, but how do we get there? Because he's still, he's not a defeated power. So what, the United States should bomb the hell out of Russia and then take him to court? So I don't know. But I think at this point, he really should be treated as Saddam Hussein, as Kim Jong-un. The sanctions probably were on the level of Iran. They were, um, you know, the for now, I think Russian oil is necessary, but you know, soon enough, probably they when it is found out where else it can come from, uh, it can be like with Iran, it can be sanctioned and not used. Whether it can bring him to uh, to his knees, no, because it didn't bring Iran to his knees to its knees. It, it didn't bring Saddam Hussein to his knees. So I don't know what the re- results will be. So w- what you said is probably what it is. It is another, but I don't know even if it's a cold war. I mean, it's another, it's another confrontation. We don't have a word for it yet. We don't have a title for it yet, but it is a confrontation that is probably going to be long lasting and uh, um, very unlikely the West can have any solving or salvation power to this, at least at this point. Well, that's a frightening prospect. We're, we're at the, on the precipice of something unknown. And we're in completely new territory. Everybody in the West uh, and around the world, we're in uncharted territory. As we sat here today, Joe Biden was asked uh, moments ago whether he thought Putin planned on going beyond Ukraine. Was this just the beginning? And he said yes. So this is a conversation that is going to be continuing. It's one we're going to be monitoring Um Clearly, he knows, we, he knows more. Now I know that he knows more than we do. So maybe, yes. Maybe, yeah, yeah. maybe he's going to take the whole continent. Who knows? Yeah. Well, that's a frightening prospect. Um, 
Nina Krusheva, thank you so much for coming on Inside the Hive this week and helping illuminate things for us. And uh, we're all going to be monitoring things very closely. Thank you very much. Thank you. Hi, it's Maria Hinojosa. This week, we're covering the historic elections in Mexico because a woman is going to be elected president for the first time in the country's history. Mexico is having a, an historical process. For me, it's hopeful that a lot of women that are really capable are taking a part in politics. And we'll be talking to the two top candidates themselves, Claudia Sheinbaum, the predicted winner, and her opponent, Xochitl Galvez. All this coming up on this week's Latino USA. very pleased to have Alexander Vindman on the program this week, the former Army Lieutenant Colonel and Director of European Affairs at the National Security Council, uh, who famously testified in the Trump impeachment trial that riveted the nation a couple of years ago. He's written a book, Here, Right Matters, an American Story, which is his personal autobiography and version of events around Trump's impeachment and Vindman's subsequent vilification by Trump and his minions. And now he's here today to talk about Russia and Ukraine, a subject he knows a lot about. Welcome, Colonel Vindman. Thank you. And, you know, you, uh, I know you have a whole series of questions, but you said something in your introduction that kind of got me thinking and I, I feel obligated to respond. Yeah. I remember when when we were first trying to bring uh, President Zelensky to President Trump's attention there was some unclear animosity between President Trump and Ukraine, and we just weren't quite sure what it was. But we thought one of the things that we could do to get get him over the, the, the his apprehensions or his resistance, because the entire national security community kind of a, a sensed, like maybe a sense of foreboding that you know Ukraine was in danger. He was on freedom's frontier. It was a bulwark against Russian aggression against Europe. And we, so we we had this this approach, and one of the things I remember latching onto is the fact that they both kind of shared some similar backgrounds. Both of them came from the uh, entertainment space and the media yeah. space, and both of the, both of them, you know, could at least look back with uh, pride at what they may have accomplished there. But look at the difference in these fo- these two men. One is the president of the greatest uh, nation in the world, the most powerful powerful man in the world and turned out to be a bully. And the other one, modest roots, a Jewish man that's risen to be the president of Ukraine, is now a wartime president, and is a man of steel. Courageous, unflinching in the face of uh, Russian aggression, and leading his nation. If only we had a president that could lead like that. Yeah. If only we uh, those four years weren't squandered the way President Trump squandered them, and undermined our national security. That's just, you know, it's it struck me when you were doing that introduction. It was the first thing that came to mind. Well, it's it's worth noting and reviewing for people that may not remember. So much has happened since then, since those events in which you were, were such a big part. You know, that this was about U.S. aid to Ukraine to help them, exactly what you said, bolster their military and their um, defenses against the aggressor potentially on their border, and that money was withheld. And now to slime Joe Biden, and now Joe Biden is our president, and, you know, so the world turns. We're, we just, we're in such a strange, a strange historical moment. Yeah. The 21st century is really unfolding in, in dark and very uh, perilous ways. But 
I want to ask you, first off, you must have um, seen or read about Joe Biden's press conference on this afternoon at which we're talking. Events are still fluid, but he's just announced a series of sanctions against Russia um, in hopes of deterrence of some kind. Um, I just want to get your quick reaction to what you heard and whether you think that's effective. My my hot take. Um, I would say that it's it, these are not light sanctions, but I was hoping for more, given the consequence of this of these events. There still seems to be some sort of strange belief that this will be limited in scope and limited in impact, uh, and that this won't have an enduring effect on the geopolitical landscape or U.S. national security. And I think on that basis, I mean, there might be some semblance of logic about leaving headspace for more sanctions. But I would like to see more. And one of the things I found notable by its absence, you know, I, I talk about the presence of the abnormal, uh, uh, absence of the normal. You know, this is kind of something in the book. Uh, what I think I noted was there was not enough said to about support to Ukraine. This is, shouldn't be just about diplomatic support. The Ukrainians are fighting a war against uh, the United States' most significant rival, most belligerent autocrat why are we not doing more to supply with non-lethal so that's medical logistics you know fuel whatever they need to sustain themselves but even with lethal munitions we should have been doing that for months and we didn't do enough there i know why because i i talk about it in my in my article that uh, uh, in the atlantic that came out today it's because we succumbed to what russia has mastered this ability to inspire a fear, an irrational fear, about this conf- the potential for a bilateral confrontation. In reality, the Russians do not want a confrontation with the United States. They do not want a nuclear confrontation. They consistently repeat this line back to us. A nuclear war can never be won, thus must never be fought. But they are also deathly afraid of a conventional war. For some reason... The greatest nation in the world is being preyed on through these irrational fears of some sort of confrontation with Russia. Yes, we need to be mindful. Yes, we need to be acute uh, to, to the dangers or, or aware of the dangers. But one of the reasons we find ourselves here today is because for two decades, we did not do enough to push back on Russian aggression. We did not do enough to push back on Russian belligerence. We did not do enough to push back on Russia's erosions erosion of international norms and the international system that enabled generations of U.S. prosperity. We bought down short-term risks of a flashpoint and continued to ratchet up the possibility, the likelihood of a confrontation in the long run. And now that long run is here. Now we're paying that bill. We're paying for it with an enormous amount of instability, and we're paying for it with a realistic probability of a higher confrontation than what would have unfolded if we had taken a stand earlier on. Now, in the middle of a crisis, when Russian blood's being spilled, it's definitely you know something to, to be more worried about. But if we had pushed back on Russian aggression all along the way, we would not have uh, find ourselves in this position. And you mean uh, you're talking about? Crimea and other instances in which they've shown aggression towards Eastern countries? Uh, against the U.S., it, it, against the, the U.S. and our allies. Yes, of course, against Ukraine, 
Um, but you know, in Ukraine, there's a, there are, there's a whole host of different examples. Of course, the Orange Revolution, where you know there's this famous moment where uh, Condoleezza Rice is visiting Vladimir Putin, and uh, he tra- uh, um, he parades out Yanukovych, the, the uh, autocrat that fled the country in 2014, and said, "Hey, this is my guy." And then he proceeded to muck around in the in the, in the uh, elections there. But also in uh, when he attacked the United States and signaled where he was going in 2007 at the Munich Security Conference, which is, you know, we just had the anniversary of that just days ago, uh, when Russia waged war against Georgia in 2008, when Russia waged war against Ukraine in 2014, when Russia waged war in Syria and has now become uh, a very serious actor in the Middle East. To the point where the the Israelis were considering Russia's interests ahead of the U.S. interests, the fact that they interfered in 2016 elections, they poisoned through chemical, very very dangerous chemical agents, folks on on Ukraine on uh, UK territory, nuclear weapons like this is uh, nuclear weapons grade polonium to poison another uh, uh, opponent of um, of Vladimir Putin. You know, assassinations in Germany. These things did not get the kind of response that they that was warranted, and he believed that he had impunity. He believed that he had license to do this. He believed, frankly, by Joe Biden's words, President Biden's words in December when he said "no boots on the ground," said the quiet part out loud. He basically uh, got got his uh, sphere of influence. He did not have to worry about this potential. This ambiguity about what the U.S. would have. This is not like you know. This is not a a shocking policy. This is we have this policy called strategic ambiguity. We use it in China also against China with regards to Taiwan. That did not need to be said. Instead, we kind of said, you know, we're not going to be there. All you have to do is face off against the Ukrainians. And as uh, hard as they're going to fight for their freedom and their independence and for their homes, because that's what they're fighting for, their homes they have to hold out against a much, much more powerful army. Yeah. And well, you mentioned this in the recent article you wrote in The Atlantic, you say that, you know, instead of saying that we weren't going to absolutely not put uh, boots on the ground or not use military force or help the Ukrainians, with, you know, militarily, that Putin takes from that, well, I've got uh, some leverage here. And I have to say that, uh, another part of that leverage is he sees that we just pulled out of Afghanistan and that there's no appetite, right? Mm-hmm. So we're put in this sort of uh, funky strategic um, position of um, having to both speak to our people domestically and speak to the international community about what it is our intentions are, right? Exactly right. Well, you know, I, I got to say that President Biden is extremely experienced and knowledgeable and capable, and he's been unflinching with regards to defending U.S. values and interests. He just has been very, um, I'd say, maybe more has a more narrow conception of those interests than I think is necessarily wanted because warranted because I think that I understand Putin and how he thinks and that he's going he's going to be emboldened by success here. And the other thing that we should realize is that there are two decades of history behind um, Joe Biden. It's the history of, of a lack of response from the Bush administration from the Obama administration, from the Trump administration, it wasn't simply, uh, you know, it, it was actually emboldening him. When we didn't protect the interests of our soldiers with bounties on their heads, when we pandered to uh, Vladimir Putin and, and told him, you know, how, how great he was and that uh, he was a terrific leader, we do that to this day with Tucker Carlson and Mike Pompeo and, and, and Donald Trump. 
what message does he take from that? Certainly, we see some of that. We don't have to guess. It's played all over Russian TV. The message that sends is there's an opportunity. So if he had this need for years to pull Ukraine back under his own, under his power, uh, put his thumb on Ukraine, and he thought he did that in 2014, he realized he's failed. The question of why now is clear to me. There's no doubt as to why now. He believe, he first launched this operation. He started building up in, in the beginning of 2021, just after January 6th. The U.S. looked vulnerable. Over the yeah. subsequent year, there has been more of this rhetoric around, well, Russia is not so bad. Our own citizens are worse, according to Tucker Carlson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yes, that, I was about to say that, like, um, yeah. you know, if Putin uh, is looking at the at the game board here, he's like, well, if the U.S. can't even unify, you know, domestically, what are the chances they're going to be able to unify, you know, with their European allies and with NATO and like, show any kind of resolve, any kind of backbone? And exactly which is, right. you know, uh, and it, it, it's highly disturbing when you see the comments from Trump, from Tucker yeah. Carlson and the rest that you just mentioned, especially because it, it, I read a column recently in The Times that described Putin as sort of like the de facto leader of the conservative movement around the globe, right? He's become this model authoritarian for yeah. all these populist movements around the country, around the world. And that has worked to his advantage. That's given him, I think, uh, the whatever you want to call it, the the resolve, the chutzpah to like make this kind of decision that really a lot of people did not predict he would make. They thought he's too cold and calculating. He, but, uh, you know, why would he do something that looks like it's going to have so many wild ramifications? But the ultimate kind of... Um, decision he seems to have made is that I'm going to redraw uh, the kind of global 21st century geopolitical map. Exactly right. And I think, uh, you know, this he sees, he saw opportunity because of this weakness. He thought he saw vulnerabilities between us and our allies. And that's what, that's one of the reasons that actually, frankly, you know, I, I may have been, I probably was out on a limb when I started talking about this in November Certainly in December, when I wrote the, the uh, New York Times article and said this is going to happen, people were like, what? And uh, it's just this this cold calculation, this you know deep analysis of the fact that he was putting military might on the ground, that he couldn't just easily turn about face without losing face, that he sees a deep opportunity, a fissure. Frankly, that fissure is not there. He's mistaken about that. Yes, we're distracted. But we're still uh, we're we're behemoth, and we are now kind of like we're now orienting back onto this target. We were busy doing other things. Now he's focused us back on. I mean, the things the rhetoric that's coming out right now is definitely not helpful for him. When you have the the Swedes and the Finns coming online and saying they want to uh, be part of the Na- uh, North Atlantic Council, the NATO this Na- NATO body, political body, yeah. the NAC. Uh, and considering joining, when Germany says basically that they're waking up from a deep slumber and they're going to start to rearm and they have a massive economy, uh, several times bigger than Russia, that is not what he wants. And is and right now the population in Russia that we thought was repressed is restless and is rousing. Also, there are protests in the streets. And the question is, you know, why he thought he had all this opportunity. That is a pretty major miscalculation, but he's also been insulated in power for 20 years. You know, reading the tea leaves, putting Tucker Carlson and Donald Trump on TV and just made a catastrophic mistake, I think, uh, that's going to haunt him until his dying days. Yeah. I hope. 
I hope. I don't know. You, uh, you know, in your in your role in the National Security Council, looking at at exactly all of this, I imagine you would have been developing a profile, a psychological profile of Putin about what it is uh, he intended to do. You know, you talk to diplomats and people trying to figure out what his ambitions and his goals are. And we've we've read and we we know about the kind of grievance over the collapse of the Soviet Union and the uh, this sort of uh, bigger picture of what he might uh, be trying to do here. But it's also been remarked upon that in, in the last couple of years, he's becoming increasingly isolated from his own population and from everybody, right? Like that yeah. he uh, hasn't uh, gone out and kind of pressed the flesh with the population in recent times and maybe become more megalomaniacal, maybe more... Uh, you know, thinks he's some sort of uh, Slavic deity who's going to, you know, like mm. reunite the previous empires. But, you know, you talk about uh, all the opportunity he had, but was it really predictable that he was going to do this? Well, um, it was for for maybe a small handful of folks that were that were not afraid to put their own credibility on the line. You know, I I, I guess you could take a look at it from the standpoint of. I have, uh, you know, a lot, a lot of experience on this issue. My boss at the National Security Council is like the authority on on uh, Vladimir Putin, Fiona Hill. Uh, I served in Russia firsthand. Um, uh, experience working in Russia and Ukraine. I was there for three years. I authored the national military strategy and the, uh, you know, the basically the plans for for how do we face a Russia. What I did was I did a cold analysis of what all these things mean. Just like I, you know, I allude to in the book, everything that kind of uh, came together in those moments where I reported the phone call and then I followed through, carried through the the testimony in front of Congress. In a lot of the same ways, frankly, a lot of things came together for me to kind of make this this, this call. I'm not saying I'm the only one, you know, like I, I've said it before. I'm not like some sort of swami or something like that. I just did a cold analysis, and probably one one of the things that uh, maybe differentiates, you know, a lot of analysts is that. People look to preserve access. They look to preserve credibility. They don't want to be wrong because being wrong, uh, you know, is, is, is costly because you lose credibility. And this was to me, I, I saw it coming. I thought it was it looked too serious for me to sit it out. And, uh, you know, I I'd like to think that I kind of at least helped, you know, through my involvement with this administration, through, um, you know, writing uh, through haranguing, I, I had I helped kind of orient, even if it's not sufficiently helped orient this administration in, in the right direction. And even today, like I, I don't know if I've ever tweeted anything near as much today. But my goal today mm-hmm. is really to share information and to help the U.S. public understand what's going on uh, yeah. with this very very serious situation. And I'm just doing the best I can to, you know, to continue to kind of serve and and uh, employ my whatever I've accumulated over the years to, to some sort of good. Yeah. Let me ask you this. You must have like, uh, you know, sources and friends in Eastern Europe and in Russia. Like what, uh, how do you think the Russian people are reacting to, I mean, the, the, the thing that he's relying on is a, you can sanction him all you want, but he's going to be able to keep the population at his back. Right. I mean, he's not yeah. immune to, you know, the sentiment of his own country, is he? I mean, he's, yep. he is an autocrat in that way, but it, that's, that's a tricky balancing act, isn't it? It's a big country. Yeah. So it's, it's, that's an interesting question. I mean, his most serious, he's had a couple of run-ins with uh, protests and civil discontent. One of the biggest ones was when, b- before he came to power 
in 2012 for his, um, you know, his, his third stint in government, these Bolotnaya protests in Moscow. And they were serious. I mean, were uh, hundreds of thousands of people. And he put in a, a massive security apparatus in place to suppress that. And he, he kind of guessed he had it under control. Last year, about this time, uh, Alexei Navalny, his, his most potent opponent, political opponent, released a series of kind of uh, exposés. And he was poisoned and all sorts of other things. There were large protests. There were over hundreds of, of cities, lots of people. And he suppressed them violently. And he thought he'd done, he'd done enough there. What's interesting is we don't really, frankly, have to guess that much about what the population feels like because there are large protests in many, many cities. People know what the consequences are, and they're still out on the streets. Now, is this enough to, to destabilize Putin? I don't think so. He's got a large apparatus. But there are some things that are interesting about this situation. He's got a couple hundred thousand troops on the border of Ukraine or in Ukraine now. You know, they're a combination of. He's also gotten a very significant paramilitary force, this National Guard called the Gvardia. This is exactly the force that would be responding to protests. But they're now on the border with Ukraine to be able to follow on behind mm-hmm. Russian forces, Russian ground forces, and hold ground. So the military seizes ground, the, this paramilitary holds ground. So he doesn't have that to kind of flip a switch on and, and, and start to suppress the population. He's pulled them from across the country. Because he's done enough. So there are some things like these variables that are nobody had expected are in play. And that's why I think, you know, uh, there was some really poor calculation on his part. Um, he may very well achieve his objectives, military objectives. But politically, I think this is going to be a catastrophe for him. Whether that's yeah. internal or external, uh, based on the resolve, uh, uh, you know, it's not clear. But it's going to be a problem for him. For a guy who's like a, you know, calculates risk and has a cold eye towards things, it does seem like he took a higher risk than usual. I mean, it's been suggested that he made a, a more emotional decision than he would ordinarily make, that he's come to an inflection point in the way he looks at himself and the country and his opportunity in this moment. I agree. Another aspect of this is let's think about Afghanistan and not our role in it, but the Af- you know Russia's time in Afghanistan and the Ukrainians are not going to sit down and uh, you know lie down for this. They're going to fight, and even if the, if the Russians take Kiev, um, you know there's likely to be an insurgency. This, I mean, there there's also the possibility that Russia gets bogged down in Ukraine. Uh, have yeah. you thought about that? Thought, and like, yeah, I have actually. You know what? I, this might be an area where I, I, I was wrong. I understand the Russian military capabilities, and I understand like how punishing those could be based on the vulnerabilities of the Ukrainian military. They don't have an air force. They're outmatched with regards to fires. There's no naval capability. But they have a very high morale. They're fighting for their homelands. The morale on the Russian side is very low, except for the most, probably the most skilled elite units. Some of that seems to be playing out, in fact, t- today with the kinds of losses that the Russians sustained. The way they, they executed the first 24 hours, it's not even been 24 hours. It feels like it's been a week. Um, yeah. The way they've conducted these last, I mean, they basically did a relatively light touch with regards to aerial bombardments, cruise missile strikes. They have more capability, but, and then they followed up with ground forces immediately. So they're willing to take some losses for whatever reason, because they think they could achieve their military objectives on the ground quickly. It turns out, I I don't know if that's going to bear out in fact, actually, because they've had some successes and they've had some setbacks. And it looks like if they start fighting in, in cities, especially 
they may very well get out, outmatched by the, the Ukrainians. And the reason I say that is uh, right now they're somewhat at parity in the numbers that the Ukrainians have and the numbers that the Russians have. Actually, when you bring in the Ukrainian reserves, the Ukrainians have two to one superiority. Now the Russians have greater fires. They could, they could do a lot of damage. But when you go into cities, there's an expression that cities eat armies. And Mm -hmm. in that kind of fight, it's pretty amazing how quickly things could kind of unravel. And it'll be curious. We will know very quickly how some of these things play out uh, probably within the next several days. It's not yeah. going to be decided within several days, but we will see some trend lines. Well, that's true. And when we're in this sort of shock and awe stage where everybody's sort of back on their heels. And when the dust settles, we're going to see where, you know, uh, where the chips have fallen and what the how powerful the Russians are and how strategic they actually have been. And, um, you know, we're all kind of uh, hoping and praying for the impossible, which is that they can be repelled or, you know, somehow asked to back off. But the likelihood is not. And Joe Biden's out there today being asked, um, you know, do you think that the intention is to go beyond Ukraine? And it seems pretty clear that he, uh, Putin, has larger designs here. Let's talk for a moment, though, about the domestic reaction here. You mentioned it earlier about Tucker Carlson. You're currently suing Donald Trump and Rudolph Giuliani for some of their statements and intimidation uh, during the time you were you know, testifying uh, in the impeachment trial for claiming falsely that you lied under oath and uh, attempting to get you fired and all kinds of other things. Um, what's the status of that? Yeah. Well, I guess I should probably mention, like, you know, uh, my my feelings on that one are, uh, you know, I'm doing the best I can to try to be helpful um, today as an outsider. But I, I just kind of sometimes wonder, I've wondered actually throughout this crisis, what kind of contributions I could have been making if I wasn't forced out of the uh, out of government, you know, um, maybe, mm-hmm. maybe there's more I could have done. But uh, the status of it is the courts. I mean, notoriously long drawn out process we i think we're we're all dealing with the the kind of the frustrations of that with regards to january 6th right now it's we're in the very very early stages where the other party is probably going to ask for delays and they have to submit their briefs they're going to ask for dismissals the bottom line is we have a strong case it's it's evident that the uh, the trump administration conspired with these figures and the media to to uh, attack me, to silence me, to intimidate me, and they did it both as a reprisal, a punishment, but they also did it uh, because they wanted to have a chilling effect on other officials coming forward for wrongdoing. And this is the the biggest issue I think is that you know uh, there needs to be some accountability. Um, public servants have to be able to do their jo- uh, jobs, have to be able to fulfill their duties without fear of a reprisal or intimidation from anyone. This is a country where no one's above the law. And I look forward to the day in court and holding these folks accountable, exposing their wrongdoing and, uh, you know, making it easier for other folks to step up and stand up. Yeah. You talk about the law, that nobody's above the law. And uh, it's been an ongoing frustration, I think, for not just for myself, but that uh, we find out the limits of the law. You know, there's like suits coming at Trump from all kinds of angles, whether it is financial dealings or January 6th or you name it. And, you know, the wheels of justice grind very slow. And uh, we'll, we're all kind of waiting to see whether anything will touch him. 
and whether no. Merrick Garland, the Justice Department, will uh, you know decide to bring some weight to bear on uh, his role in the insurrection of January 6th. Um, but in the meantime, we've still got people out there in the media like Tucker Carlson who are stoking this. You know, uh, We don't know what motivates a guy like that, whether he's just a pure entertainer exploiting the moment uh, or if he believes this stuff. But, uh, but you know, he brought you into it um, yep. and um, well, kind of maligned your character. And uh, tell, me, yeah. tell me about, like, what it is that he claimed about you and said. And tell me, uh, you know, what, is, what it is you'd like to say to him. Sure. Well, I think I've said quite a bit, uh, you know, on, on social media and Twitter. But, um, you know, he's basically said that he's rehashed this whole dual alliance thing. Like somehow I'm more loyal having been born in Ukraine, but leaving when I was, you know, three and a half years old, I was somehow more loyal to Ukraine than I am to the U.S. And he, his, his kind of uh, simplistic line was like, you know, he's more loyal uh, to his, his homeland or something he wants to defend his homeland or something like that. And like, yes, I want to defend my homeland. I 100% want to defend my homeland. The U.S. is under threat partially because of your activities. And I want to defend my homeland against people like you, against people like Donald Trump, against uh, Mike Pompeo. You know, th this yeah. this goes back to the fact that these folks have blood on their hands. They're going to own this. They were yeah. cheerleading for, for, for uh, Vladimir Putin. They were cheerleading. Yeah. They were demonizing Ukraine. And uh, now there are thousands of casualties that are going to unfold. This is a catastrophe for your uh, national security, and they will own it. So that's my message to them. You bought it, you own it. Going back to what we were talking about earlier, yeah, the, the way in which Putin has found allies and maybe even developed <laughs> allies in the United States. Uh, you know, it's an open question about what uh, the Mueller report yielded. Um, you know, a lot of people still have a lot of questions about Trump's involvement with Russians in the 2016 election. You know, I, having read all about it, I, I don't see how you could look at it all and not see at least the indirect uh, influence of Russians sure. that we know that they were interfered, uh, you know, through um, misinformation, but there was also contacts with the Trump campaign. And if you, you know, I don't want to overstate it because people get really uh, worked up over it, but Trump uh, clearly has put himself in a position of allying himself with Putin and trying yeah. to model himself after him. And I could not the have Trump been more colluded. How about this? I could take that for you. I could take yeah. it for you. The Trump campaign colluded with the Russian government. Yeah. Whether they did it wittingly or unwittingly, they they colluded. That's I think yes. the Mueller report is is pretty clear about that. Now, uh, unfortunately, they didn't carry that forward to accountability. But there's you know in terms of the, the contacts, the communications, that part is is pretty explicit. That's right. And a lot of people think the bottleneck on accountability was Pompeo, who's now out there continuing to. Yeah. Uh, you know, ally himself with the wrong side uh, of our national interest. Yeah. Um, you know, this is uh, something that over the long arc of history, I hope that historians will all glue together for us and, and to see what has happened here. Um, and I just find that, um, you know, I was saying today, watching what's going on with Ukraine and seeing 
whether the Republicans would kind of rally around their own country and our own country's interests and NATO and the Western alliance against Russia, and many of them have, but there's this whole faction who continues to stoke this white grievance and the nationalism and the isolationism. Uh, but we'll I do, we'll see, what's that? I think we'll see tonight. I think uh, we'll see what kind of tone uh, Tucker Carlson takes and what position he sets. I think this is going to be hard. I mean, he's a stubborn ass, uh, yeah. but he's also interested in, you know, in his, his future. And I think this is one of those things that, you know, the, the warning signs are there. I don't think this is one of those things he, he's going to want to keep kind of, he's going to try to distance, I guess he's going to try to distance himself. I don't know. But I imagine that's what he's going to try to do. You know, Donald Trump is his own worst enemy. He might not do that. But um, they'll still all, you know, basically said that it was Biden's fault or Biden failed to deter uh, and not mm. take any responsibility for their actions. Um, but I have a feeling that they're going to try to distance themselves from this. I do, too, because I don't think that any large uh, faction of the American public is going to support the idea that they're for Russia. I mean, yeah. I don't think anybody over 50 who grew up, you know, in this country is going to think of Russia and Putin as some kind of virtue uh, to yep. be followed. So thank you, Vladimir Putin. Thank you, yeah. Vladimir Putin, for, for uh, you know, throwing us yeah. a lifeline or something. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I have been thinking about what the political ramifications of, the, of this, and we talk about Putin's invasion, uh, realigning uh, the world order, but I definitely think it's going to uh, possibly realign our political order here and the way people act. Might. That's what I, yeah. that's frankly what I, I, I said today. I think, you know, there's a reasonable chance we kind of get a reformat here, uh, you know, do over of sorts, thanks to Vladimir Putin being a, an evil tyrant. Yeah, yeah. Um, Lieutenant Colonel Vindman, thank you so much for coming on Inside the Hive and uh, telling us your point of view, giving us some insight into what's going on. It's all a very fluid situation, and we're all kind of sitting here with bated breath, hoping for the, you know, any sliver of uh, hope out of this dark uh, moment. But uh, we hope to have you back again sometime. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. And that's our episode this week. I'd like to thank our guests. Nina Krusheva and Alexander Vindman for coming on the program this week. Thanks to my co-hosts, Emily Jane Fox, and our producer, Brett Fuchs, and the people at Cadence 13 who helped make this program possible. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe. Come back again next week and the week after that. Please support our sponsors the way they support this program. We'll see you next week. This week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, Senator Raphael Warnock, a Georgia Democrat, on the election and the soul of a nation. The country has long been in a spiritual crisis amplified by the reality of Trumpism. This November for me is much more than an election. It's a spiritual battle. Raphael Warnock on the New Yorker Radio Hour from WNYC Studios. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.